Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter and welcome to Spinning Plates, the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Those are Gecko and Owlet. Hi guys, this is actually really risky and I'll probably regret this. I feel this is not Gecko. It's definitely Gecko. No, it's not. This is Gecko. Okay. Um, but I don't know when, I haven't really managed to find any time to myself, so I'm trying to do the intro of the podcast while I build it. Oh my gosh, mommy! Somebody killed me! Sorry, Jesse. Um, that's a game he's playing. Uh, while I build a train track and while I name characters from PJ Masks. I'm going to keep this fairly brief because I think your tolerance for oh, this... This is okay. Okay. <laughs> Might not look... Can I get... Well done. Um, the tolerance for this style of introduction might not last very long. Um, it's funny because I think when I started the podcast, I used to do things like this more often because it was lockdown. So I'd be like in the garden trying to speak to you while I was pushing the kids on the swings and stuff. And then I kind of... I'm actually talking to anybody who's listening to my podcast, Jess. Stop talking. On the web. <laughs> <laughs> on your game? No, onto my phone. Because I'm a very professional person. No! I can't see it. It's here. It's balanced on the toy box. Um, this week's guest is a really lovely woman who I'd never met before she came no. out to talk to me. Stop. I'll stop in a minute, Mickey. No! No! Mickey, Please. look what I've done with this train track. Ready? Please. Look, put the yellow one on there. Okay. Good boy. Um... But as soon as she came around, we started chatting and it was a really 
natural flow and I felt like I could talk to her for like hours. We, we have um, things in common that I didn't realise, like the fact that we both love horror films and, and also a thing in common that I knew but Helena didn't, which was that we both have tinnitus in the house. So Helena has been suffering with tinnitus, like acute tinnitus for the last couple of years. So this actually is quite impractical, isn't it? That's lovely, Mickey. And my husband, Richard, has been suffering with tinnitus, acute tinnitus, for about nearly a year now. So we had chats about that. And Richard had a good chat with her about it because I think the thing about something like tinnitus, an invisible... All right, an invisible, uh, unwelcome visitor in your life like that is that no one can see it, no one knows you're dealing with it. But similarly, you don't know who else is dealing with something like a hearing issue. And so you don't know who the people are that you can talk to about it, particularly in the midst of the early bits of your... Um, Yes, Jessie? I know, I know. You've told me that. I think we should... Um, I think we should probably book you a hearing test, actually, Jess. Um, what does that mean? Take you to the doctor and I'll just check your hearing and see see if everything's tickety-boo. Anyway, I really liked Helena. Um, Mommy, stop! I will stop in a minute, Mickey. No! Shh, that's too loud, that's too loud. All right, I'll stop. Yes, Jessie? Today's the first time I'm going to edit... Could I just made it so that I can edit? That's brilliant, Jesse. Okay, I'll get you some crisps. All right, I'm gonna get it now. Um, this is a ruse, guys. I'm taking the phone away. Um, yes. Yeah, so, what do I want to tell you? Well, I've got thirty seconds. I want to tell you that the reason I want to speak to Helena is because I've started listening to her new podcast, which is called Room 5. It's broadcast on Radio 4, but you can also download it on BBC Sounds. You might already be familiar with her podcast because she did one called Tunnel 29. that has been downloaded over 5 million times. It's a massively successful and very, very brilliant podcast all about um, some people who escaped from one side of... Well, tunneled under the Berlin Wall, basically. Um, sorry, I'm talking in such a distracted way. But anyway, she's got a very lovely talking voice and a, a name that is a joy to say. I mean, Helena Merriman. It's actually really lovely to say out loud. Try it. You're going to like it. But you will like our chat even more. So I will see you on the other side. And in the meantime, I'm going to get some crisps. And um, I probably won't attempt to do this style of outro. Or will I? Am I feeling bold today? Will I speak to you again from the playroom? Yeah, so it. Why not? See you in a bit, guys. And I was thinking, where shall I start? But I think we will end up in the present day with your new podcast about shock diagnosis, room five. I think we'll end up with that. Maybe we'll go back in time first. So you have two children. Mm-hmm. So how old are your kids? Eight and... I always forget the age of the second one. Uh, almost five. Five oh, okay. in a few weeks. There we go. <laughs> cool. Don't worry. That, that continues, I think, doesn't it? That feeling of like, how old are you again? I know. Well, I've only got two. Because I'm one of five. Are so you? my dad would always forget. Uh, he would always sort of struggle with the names. And then he would just go, number four. Yeah. I can actually completely understand that. And Richard's yeah. a bit like that. He's, he gets there... 
year um, at school wrong quite yeah. consistently. I don't yes. think he could do... You know those forms where you have to fill out, like, um, date of birth? Yeah. I can do it quite quickly now, but yes. I think he would spend quite a long time trying to remember imagine when to get to the fourth and yeah. the fifth you start to struggle. Yeah, it's true. The pattern <laughs> slips. Nothing makes any sense anymore. They're all interchangeable. Um, where are you in the lineup with the being one of five? I'm number four, which... I always kind of was a bit gutted about because I thought you don't really get a sort of syndrome with that. So you don't have the oldest child thing. Yeah. You don't have the youngest child and you don't have the middle child. So you've got no excuse for why you're slightly odd. <laughs> I don't know. I objectively think four is quite... If, if you're going to be like quite strategic, that's mm. the one I'd pick. Mm, because you're okay. one of the cute little ones. Yeah. But you're off the radar because you're not the yeah, actual baby. that's true. You're not the last one left. Exactly. Yeah, and you're not the pioneer who's having to strike out. So I think you so can maybe I did of, all right. Yeah, you I, can I, kind I chose of, well. Yeah, yeah, well done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and what was happening in your life when you had your first baby? What was happening in my life? So I, I had just finished working on a programme that I'd co-created at the BBC called The Inquiry, which was this incredibly intense working environment making it. So it was a weekly current affairs programme where we would look at a controversial subject of that week and, and sort of take a listener through it. And I would interview a range of people. And I remember when I, yeah, when I became pregnant, just feeling this sort of relief that, oh, okay, there's a, there's a kind of, there's an out for this quite stressful uh, working environment and then and life outside of it yeah and <laughs> and then it was interesting because I think while while part of me was sort of desperate to um embrace a very different life that I, I sort of thought oh it'd be coffee mornings and going for the walk going for walks with friends and there was all that and there were bits of it that I really loved but the thing that I really struggled with that I hadn't anticipated was broken off conversations when you're with uh very young uh, babies or toddlers in a cafe and you're you're with friends and like you know I'd, I'd be going out with a like local mum or whatever and you'd be desperate to talk about something but it's like oh well uh just got on the floor just got to get something out of their mouth <laughs> oh there's a poo sliding out of their leg <laughs> and after yeah after about seven eight months I I found that bit really hard and I still remember my first day going back to work and just feeling so just elated to be having a conversation. I remember sitting next to my friend and we had this half an hour conversation. I mean, you know, it wasn't about anything particularly uh, intellectual, but just to be able to have a half an hour conversation uninterrupted just felt amazing. Yeah, it's a luxury you don't know you have until it's, yeah. <laughs> until it's not there at yeah. the time. And, 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 and something that you realise you need as mm. well. And I think I hadn't realised that. And there, I remember there were times when, particularly in those early stages when they sleep a lot, where I remember feeling just a little bit bored and I remember saying that at one point and this other mum kind of looking shocked and saying, my gosh, you're bored, but isn't it just amazing seeing your baby develop and change? And of course it, of course it is. You know, that's amazing seeing that. But I, yeah, at moments I did feel bored and I felt very guilty about that. And it's only recently that I've found other mums who have felt something a little bit similar at Yeah, times. I think that's... I'm surprised the other mum was quite... I mean, of course it's wonderful seeing mm. a baby develop, but you don't do mm. that, like, every hour, minute of every hour. Yes, just <laughs> like watching paint dry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's enough just to watch you sleep every day when you're not keeping me busy with everything else. Yeah. And, um, and actually, you kind of um, summed up basically why I wanted to act, start the podcast in the first place, actually, because... Mm. Um, we started these recordings, uh, Claire and I, when it was the beginning of 
the first lockdown. We didn't know that was what was going to happen, but that was actually what was mm. going on in the world. Literally, as we were sort of the first couple of interviews we did, it was the time where you kind of, is it okay to go around people's houses, mm-hmm. lots of hand washing? Um, is it okay if we hug goodbye at the end? All that sort of weirdness. And then they became the best and only full conversations I was mm. having for like the next you know, whatever it was, 18 months, two years, pretty much, of just even when I was trying to get back to work and everything, just, I can, if I'm recording, I can speak and we will finish yeah. and we can dig in and it's lovely. Yeah, it's, it's such a good point. I mean, even us now here sitting in this room, it's so lovely to just be in the same room and be in a place where you feel you're not going to be disturbed. Yeah. And, you know, it's almost, it slightly reminds me of therapy. <laughs> well, know? actually, I think there it's, is a therapy in it. And yeah. those conversations, even the ones that like you said you had with your friend when you got back to work and it was half an hour of just mm. chatting. For me, that is my counselling, all mm. of that stuff. All the casual exchanges are all part of it, and they're really valuable. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I've, I've listened to so many episodes of your podcast, and I love it because there are so many things that people have brought up, or little moments of vulnerability, or little life hacks, or just those, those small sort of everyday moments where you hear it and it resonates, and actually, like the best sort of therapy, it makes you feel a little bit like you're not so weird for feeling the things that you do. Definitely. So it's a really special thing, those, just those conversations. Yeah, and it's always been really nice to me that I get to kind of be a bit nosy with people, mm. actually, and find mm. out where everybody's feeling. And I suppose, like everything, you kind of start things and sometimes understand the reason you're doing it as you're doing it. I think, I think actually, even now I'm nearly 18 years into motherhood, there's still bits of it where I think, is it all right that I do it this way? Is it all right that I feel like that? That sometimes mm. still mm. sort of giving myself permission to to yeah have motherhood the way that feels right to me really totally and I you know we were talking a bit before about how you know I think I grew up at a time when we often didn't feel it was okay to feel certain things and we would um, try to sort of squish down uncomfortable or, or difficult feelings and I think one of the big revelations for me as a mum I think has been learning that I don't have to do that so I you know the quite a few traumatic things that happened in the first few years when my oldest was born so her, her birth was quite difficult I broke my coccyx so it was incredibly painful and what just before you had a baby you broke your coccyx no dur- giving birth really she was uh she was very big <laughs> I don't think I knew that was possible yeah yeah oh god poor you that sounds awful yeah see I, be- I became one of those people who takes one of those cushions to work mm. with a hole in the middle yeah. and tries to style it out. <laughs> like, now I think I would do it. I think we're so much braver at talking about these things. I think now I would do it and not be embarrassed. But I remember at the time just feeling so embarrassed that I had this special cushion that I had to sit on all the time. And, yeah, it, it, was, it was incredibly painful for quite a long time. And... Uh, so I just asked a question. Yeah. Did, did you know that, that, do they say like, we're going to have to break your back to have your baby or is it just no, like a thing No, it was just as she came through? out. Yeah, yeah, because uh, she was almost 10 pounds. Wow. And a very large head. And yeah, it's, it's relatively common as I discovered on yeah. various websites when I was Googling around about coccyx, uh, coccyx is breaking. And uh, yeah, and, and there are various other things that happened that year. And, and so often I would try and sort of squish them and try and be that sort of, happy mum that doesn't really say anything and I think over the last few years I realized that actually when you when you can name and share an emotion with your children it sort of becomes less terrifying to them and they understand why you're in a particular mood that day or whatever it doesn't have to be a sort of huge right let's mummy deliver a one-hour lecture about her feelings but just just naming it has been a really 
powerful thing to be able to do. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, that whole thing of there's such a rush of things that happen when you have a baby, however they come into the world, that you're, the bit where people reflect about birth and any other things that happen to your body during that time are almost kind of a bit lost in the wash. Mm. Because if you've mm. got a healthy baby at the end of it, it's like, well, all's well that ends well. Totally. And sometimes, you know, I've got really close friends I didn't find out until... So that's quite a significant amount of time later that maybe something really terrible and traumatic mm. happened. Maybe something physical, maybe something that's changed. I mean, I've got, I don't know, one girlfriend that it turned out had really bad prolapse and she didn't mm. tell me for a really long time. Mm. And then I was thinking about, like, that must be so lonely. Mm. Just, no one's going to know. No one's going to ask you. I'll just say, oh, your baby's here. Let's have a look at your baby. How lovely. And you're thinking, well, yeah, it's, it's great. Of course, that's the right emphasis, but I don't really know where I am in this all, all this time. And it, it's that horrible, weird feeling of like not really knowing which way's up for a little while, and am I the same person I was before this baby was born? And what what's important to me now? And yeah, is it okay if these things are still important to me? Yes, all of that. And did you always plan on going back to work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so with the, for, with uh, my first, I went back relatively quickly when she was about, I suppose, eight months old, which I suppose for someone listening in America wouldn't sound that quick because <laughs> then the maternity leave there is often very short. Mm. Um, and then I, I was working three days a week and, and then went up to four. And I loved that balance. I actually found, and I still do, I still, I still love the balance that you have if you can combine work and being a mother, which I know isn't always something that everyone can do. But I, I tend to get quite obsessive about whatever it is that I'm doing. And when I've been making podcasts in the past, you know, I can get to the point where I'll just obsessively work on it evenings, weekends. But having to then come home and be there for bath time and suddenly being like doing raspberries on their tummies and splashing water around I find it really just pulls me out of my head and it stops me from over obsessing about work and then the same thing I think if I if I perhaps didn't have uh didn't have a job I, I can imagine I might slightly over obsess about the mothering side so I I, I, I love that balance yeah, no, that's a really good way to put it, actually. And I think also that thing of being able to go to work and get really focused and bed in and mm. use bits of your brain that lay dormant the rest of the time is a lovely feeling, isn't it, when it all kind of expands and fires up again. Mm. And did you feel like everything kind of came back quite quickly when you went to work and could get it all fired Oh, gosh, up? no. Like, I remember... <laughs> I mean, in a funny way, I think I remember feeling more brain fog when I was pregnant actually and just feeling like I wasn't quite there and maybe it was things like just having a massive tummy and not being able to get close enough to the mic or just practical things like that um and but then I do remember going back and thinking oh is my brain going to be working in the same way that it was and I remember I think one of the first programs I did was all about sanctions in Russia and I was interviewing this Russian economist and his accent was quite thick. And I think by that time, my hearing was all also beginning to go. And I remember sort of straining to hear what he was saying and thinking, oh, am I, you know, am I on it? And, you know, a few times feeling like I wasn't sort of coming up with those questions as quickly as I would be, but sort of feeling that's okay. It's going to take a few months to, mm. to get back. And it's one of those things that I think you notice, but no one else does. Yeah, and it's quite or good you to be... Don't. <laughs> yeah, and it's, well, it's quite good to be forgiving with yourself, actually, because that thing of questioning your sharpness it, it can be... Um, mm. It can sort of get very distracting and actually cloud your ability to think yeah. about other stuff anyway, just mm. giving yourself a bit of space. And no matter who you are and what you're up to, nobody's going to be finding that every day they're, like, feeling, yeah. like, really yes. well-old cogs, you know. It's like there's lots of things that happen. Um, 
and lots of things that are going on behind the scenes with people that you don't know. And sometimes when someone else feels like, seems like they're really on it, yeah. you can find out later that actually there was a myriad of things in their head making them feel totally. paranoid and useless as well. It's like that. We're all, you don't, just don't really know, do you? Yeah. Um, but you mentioned your hearing, and obviously that's something that became much more centre stage after your, after your second baby. Is yeah, that exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. So that it was when my second was about four months old, and I remember lying in bed one night and you know, he was sort of four months, so I was very used to doing those middle-of-the-night wake-ups when he would squawk and I'd go and figure out what was wrong. And then I remember waking up one night and then my husband wasn't in bed next to me and I thought, that's strange, where's he gone? And then I looked up and saw him, he was on the baby monitor and he was holding our four-month-old and I thought, why did I, why did I suddenly not hear him? And it kept happening over the next few weeks that I just wouldn't wake up when when he cried. And then... During the day when I would see friends, I noticed that I was doing a lot of lip reading. And if I, you know, if I was somewhere busy or a noisy cafe, I was really struggling to hear. And for a while, I didn't really do anything because I thought, actually, it's quite nice to have <laughs> my husband doing the middle of the night wake up. <laughs> do you think maybe you might just be sleeping in a different yeah. way, just actually, like, chronically yes, tired? exactly. You know, four months in, yeah. you know, the hormones are wearing off, so you're, I don't know, all of that. And I, and I didn't and really want to think about it. another child as well. Yeah, so, exactly. Know. So you're, you're going to be tired. And then eventually I went to see a GP and they referred me to an audiologist. And I remember sitting in one of those, those booths that, other people probably know where you sit there and you have a little joystick and kind of desperately the sort of the student in me desperately wanting to do really well and <laughs> hear all the noises and I remember the beeps starting off and they felt really clear and I thought okay I'm gonna you know I can do this my ears are still working and then it they started getting quieter and I remember looking through the glass and I could see the audiologist and he was still looking at the screen and just realizing that the beeps were still playing but I couldn't hear them anymore so was he testing one ear and the and the other ear yeah and yeah. is this the one where when whenever you hear a beep you just click exactly the little joystick. exactly i've done those yeah. tests yeah. have you yeah a long time ago now but yeah um I, I would actually not even really sure what my results would be now but yeah. i did it a while back when um probably in my mid-20s i think mm, mm. just to sort of check hearing yeah i've given my ears a bit of a bashing yeah so. i can imagine <laughs> like what's your hearing like um i mm, Okay, I had one experience where I think I damaged my right ear quite badly mm. and it was nothing to do with music mm. and it was quite an odd thing. But basically I was working in, um, in New Orleans uh, just for a long mm. weekend. I had a job Amazing there. Place. Yeah, really cool. Yeah. And Richard came with me and we packed loads in. We went on a gator tour and we went on a ghost stories, oh, in, you know, walk through the city. Amazing place. Um, and one thing we did was we went to a shooting range where you're firing actual guns. Yeah. And it was really weird. I remember getting there and and seeing a a globe on the on the desk and thinking, "Wow, you spin that globe and I'm there. I'm like, mm. oh, why am I sort of here? You know, sort of zooming in like at the beginning of a film. Like, yeah. here I am in a shooting yeah. range in New Orleans. Yeah. Like, how? Who, how me? did this why? happen? Yeah. <laughs> and um, and in the glass cabinet they had all these guns and there was one pink one and I was like, oh, like a what a funny thing to make a gun pink and the guy. Yeah. Working there went to me. You're gonna love it. It's better than shopping. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And I think, am I? Maybe I will. Maybe I'll be I like, love this rehearsed line yeah. that he's yeah. used with any woman that comes exactly. across him. <laughs> and I was like, maybe, maybe I'm, I am gonna love it. Yeah. Maybe shooting is like, yeah. Yes, let me do more of that. This is it. Yeah, this is it. I'm about to love this burning ambition. Yeah. So I walk in there, and you've got the big mufflers on, and 
picture of I don't know. That looked pretty good, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got the stance, and I fired the gun a couple of times, and I was like, I absolutely hate this. It's yeah. horrible. Yeah. It's violent and yeah. really noisy. Yeah. And I was given ten, uh, fifty bullets. I got through ten, and I was like, I don't want any more. But while I was doing it, it was really ringing, and I think one of the headphones wasn't on properly, the muffler things, and um, the rest of the day I could hardly hear in that ear at all. Mm. It was like chronic, and I'd be like clicking next to my ear, and I couldn't really hear it. And that must have been quite terrifying. Yeah, and then a few months later I went to a hotel room and did that thing of checking into the hotel room, and suddenly all the outside noises went, and I was in this very quiet room, Mm. and then I could really hear my ear Mm. really badly. And I had that slightly matter-of-fact thing of thinking oh, well, I guess that's me. And I don't know if this is even true, but I'd been told that it's to do with the ear hair follicles bending yeah. and then yeah, wherever exactly. they're broken is the pitch that you hear. Yes. Um, so I thought, yeah, well, so that's that then. There's nothing you can do about that. Uh, but I suppose as a musician, you, so many people I know have got that mm. and so many people don't really seem to be bothered by it. And it's still, I still, I'm part of the era of musicians where you didn't have any in-ear monitoring mm. before. Mm. So all my early rehearsals and gigs were just everything blaring really loud. And now I can just be a lot more careful. But now I have to have things, weird. I have to have things quite quiet. And mm. that makes me feel better. Mm, but that ear distorts. If things are loud, it kind of crackles, yeah. distorts. Yeah, because those hairs, they, they never grow back. And mm. they do in animals, but just not in humans. Really? Yeah, so animals can handle hearing damage and they're, they're, those hairs in your ears will grow back. But for humans, once they've gone, they're gone forever. Wow. And I suppose also people who work with sound as a key component of their day job are more, even more aware of, of how sound is being affected. Yeah, yes, exactly. So for yeah. you, not only someone working in radio and broadcasting and putting together shows, you're also, is it right, you have perfect pitch? Yeah. And had always enjoyed sound yeah, and collecting yeah. sounds. Yes, yeah. I mean, when I was little, I had two or three dictaphones and I remember I would just leave them around the house and record stuff and so I've got all these bits of audio at home of family lunch times or arguments with my sisters or just me playing the piano or my cat purring I've got I've got hours of You've my cat all of purring it's pretty boring but I still love listening to it yeah I've still got it all that's really lovely and so I started playing piano from very young and oboe and and I you know music was a big a big big thing and then uh, I remember getting really into horror films with my mum when I, I was about 12 films. or 13. And, like, not the kind of bloody, gory horror that like you get now. Ones. Yeah, the kind of old-fashioned Hitchcock yeah. or The Omen. Yeah, um, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, of. Rosemary's Baby. And the, and the music for all of them, particularly Alfred, the Hitchcock films, mm. the Bernard Herrmann scores. And I remember we'd be sitting there watching them, and when they would get very scary, she'd always pick up the remote and just press mute and she would say, if you, want to, if you want to make it less scary, just just turn the sound off. And I think that sparked this sort of fascination with music and sound. And, mm. and after that point, I think I always thought that's, that's where the emotion comes in in any piece of art for me, whether it's video or radio. It's that sound that just, the, that can really bring it to life. Yeah. Isn't so, that interesting? Yeah. It is. It's such an um, indicator of, of things around you without you even being mm. aware of it. And... Yeah, you're right, like musical scores, they can just use it to inform you of what's mm, coming mm. in such a clever way. Yeah. My favourite example of that has got to be the Jaws soundtrack. Yes, yes. Because 
it's got this sim it, it tells you how far away the danger is yeah. with how quickly yeah. the notes are going. Yes. The proximity of the semitones mm. is almost mm. uncomfortable. So it already gives you that. It's just on edge. But it also is like your heartbeat. Boom, 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 and I love boom, the story boom, of how so he wrote clever. that. Apparently him and Steven Spielberg were sitting around the piano and he was sort of playing, because it was John Williams. I think yeah. And he was playing, playing around with various ideas. And then he suddenly started playing those two notes, the semitones. And apparently Stephen just said, yeah, that's it. I mean, that's amazing. That's what we need. It's so simple, but, you know, I was funny, so I iconic. Thought, I thought the story was that, that, that Stephen was like really opposite. That Stephen Spielberg <laughs> came around. And John Lewis, I thought, I think I've got it and played the two. And Stephen Spielberg, what are you saying? That's only two notes. Oh, right. <laughs> Somewhere out there. Somewhere out there. They're both a good story, to be yeah. fair. <laughs> Maybe Stephen Spielberg the same tells the one go. where he said, I've got it. Yes. It's these two. And John <laughs> Williams tells the one where he's like, it's this and Spielberg. They like, need to do a podcast so. and figure yeah. it out. <laughs> um... <laughs> This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So going back to when you're having these first issues with sound and you can tell that you're not hearing the beeps, mm. what happens after that? So then at first they said, oh, it's just a bit, might be a bit of congestion, go away and spray beconase up your nose for a bit and get rid of it. So I kind of went for it and I did lots of steam bowls and really hoped it would go and that my hearing would return. And then I went back for an appointment six weeks later and, yeah, I still really I remember that room and sitting there and this consultant had looked through my hearing tests and all my, my other symptoms. And he just looked at me and said, yeah, you've, you've got otosclerosis. I'd never heard of it, so I said, what is that? And he said, it's a hearing condition. It's degenerative, so you will gradually lose your hearing. Mm. 
you've probably got it in both ears, which I do. I've had a CT scan, which shows I've got it in both. And there's no cure. And I, I felt very out of body. I sort of felt like yeah. I was sort of watching myself take it in because it was just so far from what I thought. Because so much of the time when we have things wrong with, wrong with our body, we end up feeling like a hypochondriac because so often it turns out to be nothing. Or you're often on a path to getting back to where you started, you know, before. Yes, exactly. Or you're told that with some treatment, you can go back to where you were before. Yeah. And I think I, I asked, I mean, all my skills as a journalist failed me because I, I hardly asked any questions, partly because I was thinking, right, I know I've only got 10 minutes for this appointment. And yeah. I just remember him saying, we, we don't know how quickly you'll lose your hearing. You could lose most of it in the next few years. It could take longer. Uh, I imagine one of the scariest words is degenerative, just the idea of something yeah. impending and exactly. worsening. Exactly. With a speed that's just... Yeah, can't really tell you exactly, but one thing we do know is it's that's what's happening. And it's you know we were talking just earlier about how sometimes as a mum you have to sort of you have to squish difficult feelings around your kids because you have to be able to sort of operate mm. while other things are going on. And that night was was really an example of that because I remember coming home and getting the kids bathed and dressed and doing their stories and obviously not telling them what was going on because I was still trying to work out how I felt. So being on this sort of weird autopilot and then going to bed and it wasn't really till I went to bed and I remember just lying there and there was something about lying there in the dark so not being able to see anything and then just sort of imagining not being able to hear. And that, that was a real, yeah, that was a real low point thinking, my gosh, all these sounds and music that have been such a big part of my life, are they just going to slowly, yeah. slowly disappear? There's a real cruelty in that idea as well of... of having it be so much part of your life and then mm. not it's ebbing ebbing away so you can you don't even know how to deal with that idea yeah the and then my job I was thinking my whole job I work with sound I'm editing sound interviewing people mm. all the time do I do I have to give that up like if I tell people at work will they stop giving me commissions to make things because they'll think my ears don't work right so I, I didn't tell anyone for a really long time obviously told my husband and what about your yeah how did your family and husband because with any diagnosis there's many concentric circles of mm. who's affected and that's that's yeah. hard for them to know that's going on yeah yeah Henry my husband he was he was great um very yeah very sympathetic and I, but I think for a lot of people and I think probably this is true for a lot of people who are diagnosed with something you know you don't you don't always know what it is you're dealing with yet. So for me, mm. you know, my I could still hear out of that ear. It was steadily getting worse. So it was more, I think, a psychological thing that I was just sort of sitting there with thought, difficult thoughts churning around, but also not wanting to be too much of a downer. So I didn't tell many of my friends about it at that point. And then, then I discovered that there was an operation that you can do, uh, which basically, because otosclerosis, it affects the smallest bone in your body, which is called the stapes, and that's deep in your ear, and it make, makes that bone grow in a slightly strange way. Okay. And the reason I'd noticed it just after uh, Sam, well, four months after Sam was born, was that it pregnancy fast-tracks it. So it does... the hormones? Yeah, exactly, because okay. of the hormones. So it just speeds up uh, the rate at which that bone grows in an abnormal way. Which is quite a crazy idea in itself, actually, that yeah. pregnancy hormones can have that effect yes. on other parts of your body and other things that are going on. Yeah, and there's, I'm, I'm part of various chat groups and forums, and nearly all of them are recently pregnant women. Really? Mm. 
That's quite a scary idea, isn't it? That when you go through the process of pregnancy, you don't actually know all these other things that have yeah. been affected. Yeah. And sometimes I imagine if it's not something quite as clear-cut as my hearing is affected, there must be things where on paper there's like a myriad of all these different symptoms and syndromes yes. that you don't really even know Yes. Yeah. what's, what's kick-started what. Yeah, because, you know, the effect of pregnancy on your body is huge mm. on your hormones and we know it can lead to, to so many changes. But you're right, like... Th- those things are never discussed and I mm. guess you know how would it be like if you're about to have sex with someone and they suddenly give you a disclosure form saying <laughs> you know caution if you do this you might end up with otosclerosis or yeah you know I mean it, we obviously don't operate like that um, no but yeah so I, I <laughs> it's probably for the best yeah but. exactly <laughs> we just sort of plunge in and questions asked later but yeah, I I then had to make this decision about whether to have the operation or not. And that was a hard one because the the risks were, you know, if the operation goes wrong, you could end up with a paralysed face, you could end up with losing all the taste sensations, um, or you could go completely deaf in that ear. So when I first heard about it, I discounted it because I thought that's just too big a risk. And I guess if you're already the have a many percent of people that end up with otosclerosis then you yeah. might also be one of that percent that gets the yes yeah exactly well that's or... and that's such a good point that i think you know we always we always think about the things in terms of the numbers and statistics and you know there's only one percent of us who get otosclerosis in the first place so exactly when i thought well i was that one percent yeah there's going to be someone who is that one to two percent who maybe goes deaf or so yeah i, I decided against it but then i had an appointment about a year later, and I discovered that there was very little hearing in my right ear. And at that point, I thought, okay, I'll do it. Because mm. there's, there's less to lose. So were you making Tunnel 29 during this time? Or yeah. before that? I was making it during it. During? Yeah. And yeah, was so. that, did that have provide a, a focus? Or was that actually something that was... Did it take your mind off what was going mm. on? Or? Yeah, I, it was definitely a distraction. I mean, it was just fun going and flying out to Berlin and spending time in in you know people's homes with them talking about this amazing tunnel and eating apple cake and pretzels and and then and then I would sit there with headphones and I was doing a lot of just twizzling around with uh, the levels so that I had I could hear better in my right ear than my left um, but also in a way the, a lot of those interviews were done with a translator because they were in German so that helped because it gave me time to sort of the translator would translate and then I could just sort of query things if I hadn't quite heard mm. heard right and then even things like when I was editing I'll often play around with the frequencies at which I'm editing so if I'm here if, if I'm struggling to hear something or if it's sort of aggravating the tinnitus that I've now got I'll just switch the frequency around as I'm editing it and then switch it back yeah so I'm I guess, learning little tricks little tricks and also um I suppose the fact that people were talking about such an extreme experience with the Berlin Wall mm. that also is something where you're thinking you're meeting these people who've survived something totally that changed their life completely upside down totally so. and you know I'm very lucky that I you know my condition isn't life-threatening it's it's not painful and I'm so aware having just made the podcast series that I've made that other people live with things that are much harder to live with um and you know I think I'm also really lucky that I live in a time when there's this operation that you can do which is just amazing because I could watch I watched the whole thing so you're awake when this operation yeah. was happening yeah so, so you lie on a bed and Crazy. you just have your I have my right ear facing up which is the bad ear and then 
uh, my surgeon was using this microscope that was attached to a camera. And then so I watched it on a screen because I'm kind of fascinated wow. by bodies. And I was like, yes, I want to see it. And yeah, so I watched him. Yes, yeah, so I watched him as he went down the ear canal. He opened up my ear. Uh, I could see there my eardrum, which is this kind of beautiful, like fleshy pink, almost quite sort of sparkly. It looks uh, almost like something wow. from another world. Wow. And then he lifts up the eardrum. He sort of folds it back. And then I could see my bone, this stapes, that's grown in this very weird way. And he picked up this tiny pair of tweezers, um, pulled the stapes out, and then he picks up this tiny bit of metal, puts it down my ear canal, and then hooks it onto the bone. You know, the whole thing can't have taken more than about 15 minutes. How, and do, how do they keep you so still if you're awake? You're with lots of Max Richter music ah. <laughs> to calm, calm you. He, he said I could bring a playlist in, so of course it was Max Richter, who I'm obsessed with. But then you just keep absolutely still. But you're not worried you might, like, cough No, they give you a bit of sedation. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good memory. So I had this anaesthetist above me who was making lots of jokes, but also being quite calming. Not too funny, though. Not too funny, exactly. I know, can you imagine? Just like keep joking. the humour, just, just at the right level. He was probably chosen because he wasn't that funny. <laughs> but, and then there's a moment where he brings, he, he puts the laser down my ear, and I could see it, and it looked like a little blowtorch. And then he points it towards the stapes, and he sort of blitzes it. And then, yeah, that's the thing that he then pulls out. And then he puts this bit of metal down, hooks it onto the bone, and it was absolutely amazing because I went from hardly hearing anything out of that ear 10 minutes beforehand. Mm. The minute he hooked it on, I could hear. That's insane, isn't it? Yeah, I could like hear the room, I could hear people talking, I could hear the music. It was like I was laughing. I was just laughing and laughing and laughing because I couldn't believe it was that like, simple in a incredible. way. Incredible. And poor old Beethoven, you know, he probably had it. Yeah. Oh, yes. And he has to, you know, gradually go deaf and he would play Moonlight Sonata with his ear on the piano so he could feel the vibrations. You know, he didn't live in a time when you could do that. So yeah. I feel so lucky that yeah. you know, I do. Well, yeah, and like if I had lived in a different era, I would I would have died with my first baby, you know. Lots really? Of, yeah, I had something called preeclampsia, which meant I had oh, yeah. to have him early, but it was very common um, in years gone by for that to be a cause of death in first-time mothers because wow. it's more common with the first wow. baby. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't have been here. And then my first and my second babies wouldn't have made it because they needed lots of medical support with being premature. Yeah. And that's yes. not even actually yeah. saying about bygone eras. We're talking about being in a first world country actually mm, and mm. access to amazing um, medicine and resources and all of that. Yeah. Um, but also, I bet your surgeon guy must be awesome at the game Operation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> yeah. I think he's basically... He can hook that little He can hook the, the, the tiny <laughs> bone little, that no, no one yeah. and, with normal fingers. Get that little horse one out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, That's such a good point. <laughs> <laughs> but so the operation is a success for the first bit, but then two hours later, is that when the tinnitus yeah. starts? Yeah, two hours later, I was lying in the ward and I was really dizzy. It was like something from Inception where you have all the floors and the ceilings colliding. And that was okay because I knew it was going to be like that. And then suddenly it was like someone had pressed... Exactly, a, so the, the eardrum's been exactly, shifted then. So your yeah. perception of... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so your balance, everything, everything goes wow. out. Isn't that crazy that that's yeah. all in control of all yes. of that as well? And now you've seen it. You've seen yes. yeah. what tiny bits of us Because it's such do. a big deal to lift up your eardrum, mm. you know, to then and then to, to put it back in. So your so you're sort of ear and your brain are kind of going, oh, it's all right, it's all right, you know, yeah. trying to calm down. And then it was like someone pressed a switch in my ear... And the sound 
went on this incredibly loud sound. And I'd I'd long had tinnitus. It's another symptom of otosclerosis. It's very common with oh, hearing loss that. as well. So you'd had tinnitus. Yeah, and it was the before ver- the it started. Yeah. Or yeah, so I oh. had tinnitus for a good like five or six years, but it was it wasn't too noisy. It was that high pitch ringing, mm. and I'd sort of found a way of sort of living with it and got used to it, partly because it wasn't so loud. But this new tinnitus was unlike anything. It was like a kettle whistling, just a very loud kettle whistling in my ear. Mm. And I remember calling this this nurse over and saying, oh, I'm really worried because I'd, I'd read that this could be one of the first signs that you're going to go deaf, that the operation hasn't gone well. Oh, wow. And I was put on steroids because they were really worried that my eardrum hadn't, just hadn't coped well. And that was such a weird two weeks. I don't know whether you've had to take steroids, but yeah, have once. you? Very oh, extreme. Gosh. Did you feel like Superwoman? Did it like make you go manically energetic? Yes, but I also got. I remember having a really big panic attack when I was starting oh, as well you? because I think this was years ago now. But mm. I think it really like overstimulated me and yeah. I got a bit freaked out. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it really. I mean, I remember just going on these like four or five hour long walks, and then I was editing Tunnel Twenty Nine at the time, so I would like be editing late, late, late into the night because you just feel so productive so it's quite a nice feeling in a way but then you oh, get to the night I've had the wrong ones <laughs> <laughs> well I don't know because my ones meant Those that I couldn't steroids. sleep <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you were on <laughs> I just had a panic attack in like some uh, oh. takeaway restaurant off in Camden <laughs> a takeaway restaurant oh my yeah. gosh yeah, oh I was about to go and sit on the pavement outside yeah. <laughs> I wasn't productive at all <laughs> rubbish I don't know what I was on I, if, if, you know when I'm feeling very unproductive I do think oh be nice to yeah. kick one in, kick one of those in now. <laughs> but yeah, I uh, then I was on sleeping pills in the night, and so it was in a slightly discombobulated state. But basically, that noise has never gone. And there are in ten percent of people who have that operation, the tinnitus can either stay the same or get worse. And I was just one of those ten percent. Mm. Now, this, yeah, this was something that I mean, you were speaking before we started recording with my husband because he. Mm. This has been quite a big part of our lives here too. I mean, like you, the tinnitus that you experienced for five or six years before that is something that I think Richard and I had exactly the same thing. Um, But then he started getting really bad tinnitus last year in a way that wasn't the same as normal and Mm -hmm. was really hard to live with. So I've seen very close up how distressing that was for him. And for him, I don't know if this is what always happens, but it became quite... uh, right early on simultaneous that you get this sort of fight or flight panic with it is that something that you were having as well yeah the first two weeks were a very very dark time I mean I I think I just felt trapped by it this feeling that you can never get away like it's not like you can close your eyes or go to sleep because I really struggled to sleep Mm. and you feel like there is nowhere nowhere you can escape from it and I remember the only place where it felt like it was something I could imagine living with, was the tube. And I would just go and sit on the tube and I would spend hours on there with a book just because I couldn't hear it. And then I remember I'd come out of the tube and think, maybe it's gone, because in those early days I still thought maybe it would go. And then when it's still there, yeah, there are times... I remember asking my surgeon saying, could you make me deliberately go deaf in that ear and then would I not hear it anymore? Because that would be preferable. Yeah, just take it away. Yeah, like I hadn't... In my... Before the operation, I thought going deaf would be the worst bit of it. But actually, the tinnitus was was worse. So I think that's that was the biggest shock. But I, I I got some advice that really helped me from a friend of mine. She's an eye surgeon, and she does cataracts op- operations. And she was saying that 
often when people come around from cataracts operations, they have a little black speck in their field of vision. And they, when they see it for the first time, they think, oh my goodness, how am I going to cope with that for the rest of my life? It's going to drive me mad. And then she said, but the fascinating thing about the brain is that it habituates to the point where one day they just don't see it anymore. And I remember when she told me that, I clung onto it. So it was like a lifeline. I remember thinking, okay, even if this noise doesn't go, maybe my brain will start to hear it differently. Yeah. And that really helped. And I think that's true of so many people who have strange things with their bodies that you can't always change it, but maybe you can change how you think about it. Yeah, definitely. And I think tinnitus is a really unique one in that when... Firstly, to people who haven't ever experienced it, it doesn't sound... It's very hard to imagine what that might, yeah. must be like. Um, and most people might experience a ringing in the ears after, you know, if they go to a gig the night before or something. But to actually have it all the time, unremitting, that you can hear above conversation, above watching TV, above radio, all these things mm. is really scary. It's like a dormant kind of feeling. But also, I don't know if this happened with you, but... When Richard was first really affected and looked visibly haunted, mm. that's what his, mm. his face looked mm. like to me all the time. He just looked, I could see it in his face. Mm. He just looked completely freaked out. And I remember thinking, everybody else doesn't have, why can't we just go be like, we'd, I don't know, we're watching something on TV, it was like a woman doing a cookery show or something. Mm. And I'm like, she looks happy, she looks completely fine, she hasn't got ten at us, mm. she's not having to deal with this. And then you have to tell yourself, don't be ridiculous. There's nobody on the planet probably that gets through a life without ever feeling like mm. walking out the front door and thinking nobody knows what I've got going on on the inside that's exactly. really freaking me out exactly. or scary. Yeah, yeah. We are all carrying something. And that, when I came up with the idea for the podcast, it came so much from my own experience. Like I had the idea actually when I was coming back on the bus from my appointment and I sort of felt, and I can imagine a lot of people, this might be familiar to a lot of people when you're given a shot di diagnosis, that you suddenly feel like you've been funneled into a slightly different path to other people. Exactly. And I remember different leaving lane. the room and like, yeah, having that exact thing of looking at people and thinking, oh, they're so lucky they don't have this. And then I remember sitting on the bus and looking around and thinking, actually, probably every single person on yeah. this bus is sitting with something. Maybe something. it's depression, maybe it's... Uh, endometriosis maybe it's anxiety maybe it's cancer mm. maybe they don't even know what it is yet yeah and on the other hand there's such a I think we have a real emotional and anatomical squeamishness in this country I mean my one of the episodes of room five went out on radio yesterday and it's a guy talking about his journey to diagnosis that all begins with an itchy penis and I was really I was quite surprised by the reaction on Twitter that so many people were quite shocked by hearing this guy talking about his really? penis on Radio 4. And in some ways I get it, actually, because it is quite rare to have men talking about their penises or women. I thought he was so brilliant, by the way. Yeah, isn't he? Yeah, and I, really and it made me, I, I, I guess what I wanted to do is create a series where people feel they can talk in a very detailed, honest, upfront way about their body and for mm. it not to be weird. Because, you know, we, we watch on our TV screens at night, you know, you think of the sex scenes that we watch, breasts, buttocks everywhere, even mm. vaginas. And you even had in I May Destroy you, that scene with a tampon, which I thought was just brilliant. Yeah, I love that series. Yeah. But then it's like on radio, we're, we're still a bit more, on podcasts, we're still a bit more squeamish. I mean, your series is brilliant, I think, in helping um, to change that and, oh, and having you. people talking about those things more openly. And I think that's only ever a, 
a, a good thing that we all start to talk more openly about our bodies. Well, that's the thing. I'm always thinking, when, when has it ever really been proved to be anything other than helpful? Communication is just so valuable. Although there was quite a funny bit, because I, I listened to um, the latest episode of Rem 5 as I was walking home from school and I couldn't find my um, oh, yeah, headphones, yeah. so I was just listening to it held up with my phone like this. And as I walked past a very busy bus stop, it was the bit about, so they look at your very lovely voice, going, so they looked at John's penis and then his <laughs> testicles. And I was like, I'm just going to have to keep a very impassive face here. Like, this is a very serious yeah. program, guys. Yeah. Hold your judgment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this guy's amazing. Like, I love the fact that he didn't even mind me asking him why he was having erections after the operation in yeah. the hospital because I was kind of fascinated by that yeah. and it's like you know our bodies all do these I know. amazing extraordinary things let's let's talk about it as well as seeing them on tv screens let's talk about them and and get into those slightly icky fleshy yeah pussy places <laughs> yeah I think I think those conversations are definitely we're definitely better at having them and getting better and your your podcast will definitely help and I also love the fact that it's just called room five because I think that was the room that you had your mm. diagnosis in I think we've all had that bit when you're waiting and then you get called into a consultation yeah. room and they're homogenized and medicalized and you feel I've always felt in those situations like this sort of very muted version of me. So mm. all the stuff about mm. me that sort of my character, I guess, is sort of completely on toned down, kept very small. Mm. So that all I am there is my medical notes and like you, I try and be a really good patient mm. and I want to be clear and concise and tidy yes. and not yes. take up too much time, yes. thanks. Um, <laughs> and it's always in those rooms that you think, well, something's brought me here and I'm about to hear something and it's either going to mm. be you know, what I'm hoping or something much more scary. Yeah, or, or sometimes, I mean, the interesting thing about this series is that sometimes the stories begin with some a set of symptoms that are unexplained and sometimes they begin with a diagnosis. And I think what I find really interesting um, about diagnoses, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I'm a storyteller. And I think what interests me about a diagnosis is that so often they lead to really big decisions. You know, you're told you, you're, you have something and often you have to make really hard decisions about treatment or not treatment or what kind mm. of treatment. And I'm kind of fascinated by how people make those decisions that are suddenly thrust on them from nowhere. Yeah. So I interview, there's a woman who, she's pregnant and she has to make an incredibly difficult decision about her baby. Um, but then I also interviewed this guy, he's called Joel, who... He's American and he's had this extraordinary thing ever since he was born where he feels himself what he sees happening to other people. So if he was oh, sitting wow. here now and you were to scratch your arm, he would feel the sensation of his arm being scratched. Wow. And it turns out there is actually a, an official diagnosis, a condition that's pretty rare that he has. And it's completely changed the way scientists are think of, thinking about how all of us work when it comes to interacting with people and our empathy. That's and extraordinary. And so it's really shone a light on, on yeah, how, how we interact, how we listen to people. Does he find that hard? Like, yeah, he's, and he's a doctor. So he, in some ways he chose the oh, worst profession. Say, yeah, yeah, don't do yes. that. But oh. he, you know, so his diagnosis was this profound moment of resolution. You know, he'd grown up feeling weird, like he was a strange kid that no one understood. Yeah. And suddenly he's given a diagnosis you know, in his 30s, and he's like, this explains my whole life. Yeah. So there are people like that, and, you know, I interviewed this guy who at 17 years old, he's leaving school one day, and he's suddenly, the world is very, very loud and chaotic, and 
Uh, he starts having hallucinations and he's sectioned and his story is is very eye-opening about how we, how we treat people with psychosis. Um, and then did a really interesting interview with uh, Gavandra Hodge, who's a uh, former deputy editor of Tatler, and about childhood trauma and this amazing relationship she has with a psychologist and some incredible work they did to help her sort of come to terms with something that had happened in her childhood. So it's just such a, it's a real range of yeah. stories from physical to mental health. And I guess a lot of them as well are invisible things, like, yeah. like you're hearing things where they're not something you'd recognise with someone you won't be able to tell from just looking at them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or, you know, things that, and a woman who's had, who'd had pain in her stomach all her life growing up, and she's eventually diagnosed with something that one in ten women uh, suffer from. And, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in how... What is that thing? Endometriosis. Okay, yeah. yeah. And... You yeah, know, that, that sounds awful. That's and at painful. the moment, the British government has so that the, it's called the gender health gap, and you've probably heard that phrase. And it's this idea that the way we treat diseases between men and women really, really vary. And in the G20 group of countries, Britain has the highest, the widest gender health gap. Really, of all, yeah. Um, and so the British government has said, right, we need to do something about this because mm. it's so much more money going to treat women's uh, men's conditions as opposed to men. So there's yeah. more money that goes into erectile dysfunction then goes into helping women with premenstrual syndrome. Wow. You think that's that's not right? No, and there's a lot of conversation going on about that now, aren't there, about women being given more agency when it comes to what, what should be happening for their bodies and how to resolve mm. the issues. I mean, not least the women, going back to the prolapse thing, all those awful stories about that yeah. mesh that was being used and then these women yeah. were just yeah. with horrific, constant pain. Yeah. Just... And what I hadn't realised until making this series was that Apparently, nearly all the research trials that went on all across the world until the 90s were all based on men. And they didn't routinely include women because they thought women's hormones just made those results too complex. Oh, to work So that's harder. why, yeah, <laughs> on pretty much any condition that affects both men and women, men will nearly always have better outcomes. Wow. Because they're the one, we've been using their bodies and their hormones and the way their bodies work to figure out how to treat it. God, that's extraordinary. Isn't it? I suppose as well that all ties into things like menopause, which is now being given yeah. a much more centre stage yeah. in terms yes. of those conversations. I feel like those conversations weren't really happening. Like yeah, I think it's been 10, quite, quite a quick turn. I mean, even when it comes to, I think, another problem, and again, this is something that's admitted by the British government, who just released this report all about the gender health gap, and they were saying that another problem is that the health system has essentially been designed by men for men, mm. and that a lot of the time you have these men-only uh, boards of various research organisations who decide what clinical trials get funding and what don't. And so, of course, you end up with more money going into conditions that affect men than women. But interestingly, if, if any women want to try and shape the new, um, women, this, the, the new sort of women's health policy in this country, they've just opened up this survey online mm -hmm. and they're asking for any women over 16 to write in with their thoughts and their ideas on how things should work differently. Oh, well, that's so, brilliant. You know, there's a chance for people to try and shape it. Okay, no, that's really valid. Where do people go for that then? So on the government website. So okay. if they just googling government health policy um, women, it should okay. yeah, it should come up. No, that's really good to know. And actually, a lot of it makes sense. And I suppose like, even my mum said that when she went to uh, the doctor the first time about menopausal symptoms, and she saw a male doctor, and he said something like. Well, some of, some of it's just getting older, isn't it? Mm, and she said she mm. sort of got up to leave and then was like, hang on a minute. Yeah, no. yes. Um, Your wise mum. Yes, and I suppose <laughs> as well, some of it probably, 
I mean, this doesn't explain why the UK is so much worse, but the psychology of women being introduced to, um, you know, monthly pain and just mm. sort of getting on with it and it not being something that gets spoken about or yeah. acknowledged or part of a conversation. Um, we're, we're just kind of quite quite good about putting up with yeah. things going on for a really long time. Yes, I think. yeah. And it's interesting as well that um, apparently there's something to do with uh, the hormones that we have, again, related to pregnancy, mean that we are often, our immune systems are slightly stronger. So that's in our favour. But mm. then I was reading, apparently there is a good reason why the whole man flu thing exists, that apparently men's bodies are slightly more sensitive to a whole, you know, to whether it's a flu or, or the cold, because their immune systems just don't work as efficiently as, as women's. Really? So there's, there's, you know, something that <laughs> to be pleased for. Mustering some sympathy. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's not coming Screaming very fast. Yeah. <laughs> and how has it helped you with, so with your tennis, was there two things, I suppose, one thing is for, you, for Richard, he found meditation really helpful mm. and that's something you said that you found helpful yeah. too. Yeah, I mean. So I think if anyone is listening and tennis yeah. is part of their life. Yeah, I found it, I mean, and I'm aware that for a lot of people they'll think, oh, meditating is, is not for everyone and I really I was never a meditator before this no no all the tinnitus forums just say just don't think of the noise and that's the advice but that's terrible advice yeah terrible advice because of course you do impossible and it's impossible yeah and there are the, there are other bits of advice like don't don't drink alcohol don't go to noisy places so you can end up being a bit of a hermit mm. <laughs> which is just slightly counterproductive when you're feeling crap anyway yeah don't distract yourself yeah. don't think about it but also yeah. don't go anywhere yeah. to and then see don't anything feel, else and then don't feel like a failure because when you do think about it which of course you do yeah so I then and then a friend of mine uh told me that some guy that she'd like meditation with was coming to London and at that stage I was just trying I was throwing everything yeah. at it so I thought okay fine I'll try you know I'm terrible at meditating I always get jangly legs and start thinking about films but you know whatever and it was I remember the first day sitting there and it was a 20-minute meditation. And for the first two minutes, I thought, what am I doing? This is the worst thing. I'm sitting in silence with this kettle whistling noise. This is horrific. And then five minutes went on, 10 minutes went on, and the noise was still there. But I began to just notice it. And I began to notice little things about the noise, that it was almost a little bit musical, that there were different layers to it. It was almost, it was almost kind of interesting. And I started sort of move instead of running away from the noise I started sort of moving towards it and we did two meditations like that every day for four days and it was kind of amazing and that on the last day I remember coming home and I could still hear the noise but just not in the same way it didn't it didn't trigger this reaction of just panic and claustrophobia I yeah. could just sit with it and I think you know the buzzword buzzword tinnitus <laughs> the key word in tinnitus <laughs> is habituation and I think essentially it was just a fast track to to a habituation that might have taken me years to get to mm. and so, habituation is when you so, something is so familiar that you're not really thinking about yeah. it yeah you sort of almost learn to live with it yes exactly which is yeah. I think what a lot of a lot of people and end up doing with whatever it is they might be living with you know whether it's I don't know pain chronic pain or whether it's another condition that they might have I think so often you know me included I was desperate after my diagnosis and treatment to sort of try and get back to my old life but you often you can't when you've had a, a diagnosis you have to sort of you have to kind of em embrace a slightly new version of yourself yeah that's a good way to put it actually and probably that's something that is a good a good lesson to learn for all of us anyway there's always going to be things that make you have to 
embrace a slightly new version of yourself. Mm. I think we we can be a bit used to almost having for references who we are. Probably quite a probably quite an old version, like like mm. a way back version. Of oh ourselves. yeah, I'm still twelve. Yeah, I'm like know. sort of seventeen. It's like it's not really. <laughs> well done, you made it further than me. <laughs> <laughs> It was, I don't know why that one should be crystallised there. I wasn't really mm. my best behaved, but... Um. <laughs> Maybe that's why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's, for me, it's music, actually, that's mm. kept that chronology with that. But what's oh, that's your, really interesting. Yeah, it's like a little time travel, yeah. I think. But what's your relationship with sound like now? External sound, not the one... Yeah, so for there. a while, after the tinnitus, the tinnitus kicked in, I... All I wanted to do was be on the tube or watch like horror films that were quite loud or um, thrillers just to distract me. And I couldn't, I did, I stopped going to gigs or concerts. I stopped playing the piano, which I always used to kind of play, you know, every day and would avoid being anywhere quiet. And now, thank goodness, I've got to the stage where I can, you know, I happily sit at the piano and sometimes my, it will sort of set off strange buzzing, distorting noises in my ear, but I'm sort of okay with that. And with some of that to do with the actual operation. Yeah, because I've got this bit of metal in my mm. ear and it sometimes can sort of just make make the odd noise. But yeah, I feel like I've, yeah, I've come back. I've been able to find that person that fell in love with sound, mm. you know, age five, six, and return to that. Which is lovely because it's so much part of your life. But also, you know, with raising a young family, sound is a huge part of it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> huge part but that it ended up influencing not having another baby is that right yeah so we'd we'd thought we'd kind of thought we might have a third and when I discovered that pregnancy fast-tracked it 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 sort of I I made the decision very quickly that I didn't want to and so you know having two children I'm incredibly lucky and grateful to have them and I think it yeah it sort of pushed us down that path of not having having a third and there you know there are some women with otosclerosis who decide not to have any children because they don't want to risk it or might stick at one. And, and others who say, actually, I don't want that to affect me. And, you know, there's good reason for that too because you, a lot of those operations can be very successful. So actually the doctor who gave me advice said, don't make any decisions about children based on this. You know, there's always, there's always new treatments, there's always new forms of surgery. Yeah, it's a very personal thing that exactly. anyway, isn't it? Exactly. Very personal. When Richard was going through his, his ear stuff... Not only did one of the kids suddenly start really playing up with note that our youngest was really noticing when he made loud noises that Richard was like, it, was, it would really hurt him. But uh, we also had another of our kids start saying, my ears are ringing, my ears are ringing. And mm. he'd obviously heard Richard talk about mm. it. And I wondered what your kids, did. were they aware of any mm. of it? I mean, obviously you have to have operation. They might have mm. known about that. Yeah, and I, I mean, even now they always know the side that I like to walk on them when I'm walking to really? school because I can't really hear them out of that ear. So they're like, we've got to be on this side of mummy. And yeah, I remember my three-year-old, like his, one of his early most common phrases was mummy's ears, mummy's ears, <laughs> because whenever he was squawking or singing really loudly, particularly in the early days of the tinnitus, um, it would be, yeah, I'd just be having to sort of clutch them and yeah, running, running out of the room, holding my ears. So yeah, I think they've, they've, they've definitely had to adapt. And my eight-year-old, I mean, she gets a little bit cross when you know, if I have to say what three times, particularly if she's tried to make a joke, she likes making jokes. And, you know, if I don't get it first time, she gets quite cross. I'm like, but I didn't hear it. She goes, yeah, but it's not funny when you have to make a joke three times in a row. (laughs) True. Yeah. But kids can pick up on things sometimes as well. And do you think they've, is your home quieter than it used to be? Yeah. Yeah. They're, 
They're very thoughtful with that. And actually, my oldest, she's very good at knowing if I've... I sort of say my head's feeling a bit scrambled today, if I've been somewhere very noisy and if I'm really noticing the tinnitus. And she can be very sweet at saying, oh, let's go upstairs, because she loves putting on her... She's got a sort of fish, one of these fake fish tanks um, that's very nice to look at. And she says, oh, let's go and put that on and we can put some calming music on and doing some stretches. Aww. So she's very... Yeah, she's very understanding and, and sweet about knowing what helps me. Yeah, it is sweet. And I think also kids... Um, seem to be growing up with um, sort of mindfulness and meditation yeah, yeah. tools. They don't even, they might not call it that, yes. but it's something they're adopting more and I think that'll help them yeah, with yeah. all these things, won't it? Totally, like yoga's a huge part of her life. She loves when we do our sort of evening yoga before she goes to bed and I do a little massage at the end. Ah, oh, nice. And Yeah, I know. Sometimes I'm like, and then when she still comes down, I'm like, that was just a five-star put-down experience. I read you the book, we did yoga, I yeah. scratched your back. How can you still be awake now? Mm. But, um, no, it's, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm like, God, I wish someone would do that for me. Yeah, there's lots of bad times there where I think. Someone yeah. ran me a bath, yes. got me some fresh pyjamas. Can you imagine? Little drink in a beaker. Oh. Like, yeah, and my kids are funny because we used to do, I used to read them a book every night and then they said actually I'd like to talk so now we have what's called mm. talking time mm. or drawing time if they yeah. want to draw yeah. and um, that's really sweet as well we just hang out and yeah. just chat about stuff oh, I love that's that it's really nice and it's that pillow talk yeah. where suddenly you're lying there two humans mm. just under the duvet yeah. there's something so special about that exactly and the pressure of the day has gone off like all you're doing is yes. winding down until they do a under the duvet <laughs> 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 until they start going I'm hungry and you're like oh, yeah. no not yes. now yeah. oh, it's like you know they're not supposed to, but you're like, oh, okay, I'll go and do some toast. Yeah. Um, and from coming from a family of five, are there things you've taken from your childhood that you've brought into mm. oh, that's a good question. your household? Yeah, I mean, my gosh, there are so many things that I end up saying that I think, oh, that's my mum speaking. <laughs> and I've, I mean, there's, there's things that I'm fairly strict on that my mum was strict on, like uh, sweets and chocolate. I, I find myself being quite strict about that. And TV as well, I... And I love good TV and I have this kind of stupid thing where I say they can watch stuff if they can tell me why they like it and why it's good Ooh. and then we put it on a list. Um, but oh, we can't cool. just watch rubbish stuff. And I think that's partly... My mum, you know, she had quite strange rules. So we weren't allowed to watch Neighbours or Home and Away, but she was fine when I told her that I'd tried marijuana at age 12. And she was like, well, that's really interesting. You're doing something interesting with your life. I just don't want you watching rubbish telly. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, which that's is kind really of interesting. Because she wasn't hippie-ish at all. She was just like, do interesting things. Don't just sit there mm. watching telly. So, of course, we were obsessed with telly. And, but, uh, but I yeah, so I find myself doing a kind of similar thing. Um, and then you I know, like that idea with the list of what's, what they like. Yeah. That'd be nice for them to keep when they're older as well. Yes, And they can exactly. see how it changes. And yeah. Yeah. I was only allowed, to, I was allowed to watch Neighbours only because my dad wouldn't let me. So my mum was oh, like, oh, well, a thing. watch it. It's yeah. fine. Because they didn't, yeah. I lived in two different houses. So Yes. Yeah. And then my dad would let me watch Twin Peaks. Oh. But then yeah. my mum wouldn't. So yes. I just would watch it secretly. So, and, you know. and But it's hard when you're, I mean, I, and I guess where I, diff, I do let, my kids watch the kind of things that other their, their friends are watching because otherwise it's like you lose that yeah. thing you have in common, common. So I remember being able to kind of bullshit partly because I couldn't watch Neighbours. So I would like go and, and speak to one group of friends and kind of get the rough plot from them and then go and chat about it to another group of friends because I was just so embarrassed <laughs> to say I hadn't watched Neighbours because that was the current No, no, everybody spoke about it when you were in school, yeah. I know. Yeah, so I, I kind of like... That's the source of my bullshitting. <laughs> <laughs> it's clever. It's also kind of journalism, isn't it? Like, yes. pick up that info and then... Yes, exactly. ...comes currency yes. elsewhere. Totally. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, but I think it's lovely that it's, I suppose you've done with all the work you've done up to now, nothing's been as personal as the project you're working on at the moment. Mm, yeah, it's 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 a kind of funny one because you know normally with other programs I've made like Tunnel Twenty Nine and the Inquiry, there's a kind of I feel like I've got my sort of professional... Your journalistic. Yes, yes. And you've got a bit of armour with that because mm. you're there as this sort of BBC person. And this one's felt so different. Mm. I think maybe making it during lockdown, so doing interviews in people's houses. Yeah. You know, I met some of the people that I interviewed just in the parks around my house. So it's felt, yeah, it's felt really personal. And I, and I love that. Yeah, and you're both members of a, a club that you maybe didn't know you were going to be members of. Yeah, that's such a good way of putting it. You can start from the point that they feel safe to trust you with Yes. That. And have other people spoken to you in your personal life as well about things that they haven't spoken to you about before? Yeah, I mean, really? my goodness, I find all... Because I hardly <laughs> tell people about it at first, and then I, you know, whenever I tell people now, you know, everyone sort of then replies and they tell me their thing. Mm. And you realise that we're all, we've all got a little broken bit of us, and actually those broken things often become the things that sort of slightly shape and define us yeah and they stop seeming like broken bits they start seeming like just part parts of who we are absolutely i don't think you can get through things unscathed and if it's not happening firsthand to you then you take on all the things that are happening to people you care about as well and yes i suppose really what's at the heart of a lot of it as well is empathy and experience you know and there's always degrees of it and you know like with with richard when he was in in the worst bits of the tinnitus, you're like, well, I know things could be worse, mm-hmm. but you're still allowed to say this is really yes, tough. Yes, totally. And, and hard. Yeah. Um, but there's also just the kind of, the, I mean, I've had so many conversations with friends and actually a lot of the conversations in the series are very funny too because bodies are funny and weird and do <laughs> really inconvenient things at the worst times imaginable, like poor John and his erections and his yeah, penis with a catheter in it. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it happens and yeah. we're all human and... You know, the queen sits on the loo. Like, you know, yeah. we all do stuff. And yeah, it's, it's, I love sharing that. You know, I love, my sister's a GP and I've got another sister who's a psychologist and I love hearing their stories. Oh, wow, yeah. The things, particularly my sister who's a GP and the, you know, I think I said the other day, how many times do you have to stick your fingers up people's bottoms? I don't know why I thought of that, but it was just like, <laughs> I was kind of like interested in just, and she was like, that's the most common thing I have to do. She's like, probably really? I do like five or six of them a day. What? Yes, yes. Wow, I would not I have thought it was that common. I know. So oh. there we go. I had a really um, <laughs> awful experience once where I went to the doctor for something quite intimate. And uh, and as I was being examined, she said, I heard your song on the radio this morning. No. <laughs> so I, like a right idiot, I said, well, I hope if you hear my song again, it's not forever associated with now, which of yeah. course meant that it would be a forever yeah. associated <laughs> with that. Oh, oh, oh Wally. That is the what you just don't, you want to be completely anonymous. Yeah, completely. So you need to, you need to disguise yourself. Definitely don't relax me. <laughs> I remember having, well, I had mastitis and I went to oh, get an appointment with a doctor one. and I sort of did that whole thing of like, have you got any female doctors on today? And they said, no, just a man. And I thought, right, come on, yep. just like man up here. And I went in and uh, so the guy said, right, you know, let's see the breast. And I kind of got out this like pussy red <laughs> yeah. uh, breast. And then he was like having a look. And then he said, Merriman, I recognize that name. And I was like, no, oh, no, no, don't. And he said, yeah, I, I, I was at school with your brother and I remember I used to come to your garden and you'd be running around there with your sisters. And I was like, that is just the worst thing. I did not want to feel any connection with you. Not now, yeah. not here, not, not now. Exactly. <laughs> at least I've got my top back on. Yeah. <laughs> 
there were a lot of things I thought about after our chat. Um, I think there is a whole world out there when it comes to trauma of birth, because I think a lot of people don't get an opportunity to talk about traumatic birth insofar as I was talking to a girlfriend after I'd spoken to Helena about how um, she had broken her back during childbirth, broken her coccyx. Um, I spoke to a girlfriend of mine who said that some of the friends she has who that have just had babies during lockdown have not even seen a doctor after childbirth. So for their six-week check, they just had a phone call. And I thought, I bet there are a lot of people out there who have dealt with a very traumatic birth and maybe might be dealing with pain from that and they haven't actually really dealt with it. So I feel like there's something in that. Plus, I think even just normally, I don't know about you, but I've definitely had it where I've seen friends when they've become new parents and they still look really traumatised by the birth and there's just not really much time given to that. See, still in the playroom. But maybe, I don't know. What do you think about that? Have a think. And then the other thing I thought about is how important conversation is when it comes to providing a bit of counsel and support. So with Helena's podcast, talking to people about their diagnosis, you find yourself, you know, being introduced to all sorts of stories of people being resilient in the face of something they didn't, a challenge they didn't know they were going to have. And I think that sort of stuff is so valuable, isn't it? Just understanding that, you know, you might be a member of a club you didn't mean to be a member of, but actually the other members can make you feel less isolated and less lonely. Anyway, oh, there's a child walking towards me. Pick pick you up. Okay. Um, Anyway, thank you to you and thank you to... Oh, sorry. Heavy child. Um... Thank you to Richard and uh, for editing, Claire Jones for producing, Helena for being such a lovely guest, Ellen May for doing my artwork, but mostly you guys for listening as ever. Oh, yeah, there are some sweets in there. Do you want Um, one? Should we have one? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Um, And on that happy note... Can we get them? Yeah, I'll get them. Um, I will see you next week, and apologies for the slightly distracted tone in my voice. Oh, no. (laughs) Mickey's just, I've put him on the side so that he can reach where the crisps and sweets are, but it's when he's found this little flick book that I, I bought ages ago. What can we see in the flick book? What can we see in there? What does she show you? It's a little flick book of like a woman, a black and white um, flick bum. book. What's it? What's there? A bum. A bum, that's right. Yeah, it's a lady. she does do a bum. She does do a bum. It's like a little sort of, I wouldn't say it's overly rude. It's, it's kind of... Cheeky, cheeky. It's like a woman showing her bum, but it's black and white, so, you know, it's tasteful. All right. (laughs) But you're glad you know that. That's what me and my toddler are looking at right now. It's a very wholesome house. Have a great week. I'll see you soon. Lots of love.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 